0: I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise. When drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter. When stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In Episode 8, I meet Led Zeppelin in a dream sequence and an actual quantifiable reality Things go much better in the dream sequence. People who live through the JFK assassination never forget where they were when they heard the news. I'm the same way about the Hindenburg disaster. I was at the Wilsons' house watching an ad for a time-life record compilation on their fancy wall-mounted TV. The spot featured a medley of iconic moments from the early to mid-20th century, among them FDR's A date which will live in infamy. Edward VII's abdication speech That I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility without the help and support of the woman I love, and Herb Morrison's feverish Steve Reichian play-by-play of the Hindenburg conflagration, ending with oh, the humanity. That incendiary clip became my personal Zapruder film to ponder, analyze, and confront. The unreal texture of the giant ship's corrugated skin, the tiny people in the foreground flung and fleeing from the collapsing behemoth. It scared me to death every time, but I had to look. On most classroom shelves, you would find bulky sets of musty, barely-thumbed-through encyclopedias. World Book, Grolier's New Book of Knowledge, the occasional Funk and Wagnalls. I sought these out. The more out of date, the better. You learn to always go for the A volume rather than Z, because when you reach Zeppelin, you're told to see airship. Visually, the Hindenburg disaster was a bit like 9-11, an enormous fireball exploding against a vast backdrop of sky. With countless angles and perspectives recorded. The most common vantage was the view that graced the cover of Led Zeppelin One, with the ship's nose facing diagonally upward at ten o'clock, torrents of flame ascendant on her lower end, just seconds away from consuming the rest of her. But sometimes you would be rewarded with images from a moment or two later, the flames extending from nose to tail, or the craft grounded and crumbled like a cracked sausage. Once I saw Zeppelin's album covers, I knew the band's sound would be as vast and scarifying as the images I'd been obsessing over. In my major fantasy of this era, I'm trudging up Westervelt Avenue, guitar case in hand. A limo pulls up, and out pops Jimmy Page. Seems the band's equipment van has been nicked, and Pagey needs an electric guitar on the quick. In a dream instant, I offer him mine. He takes it out of the case unfurls the ten-years-gone lick and reckons it's a pretty damn sweet guitar. "'Take it,' I say. "'Yeah?' a sly grin forming around his cigarette. "'You sure?' "'Yeah, man. I I can call you man, right?' "'Sure you can.' "'All right. Take it, man. "'It's yours.' "'And he does.' There's no offer to hop in the limo and come hang backstage with the groupies or anything. My dream was merely that Jimmy Page would relieve me of my guitar, doubts and all. I bought physical graffiti with my bar mitzvah money. Not especially appropriate, given Robert Plant's 16 or so high-pitched repetitions of my in In My Time of Dying. Yet Led Zeppelin's sixth studio album became an instant article of faith for me, whereas my bar mitzvah, a huge deal at the time, faded quickly from memory. Except for the bits about leprosy. Your Haftorah portion, which you chant at your bar mitzvah, is a function of the Hebrew calendar, and thus a total crapshoot. You might get Lucky and nab an epic good book yarn, which are rich and plentiful. Or you could draw the short straw and get Leviticus 13, which reads like a page from an ancient dermatology treatise. I used to thumb through Dad's big green pediatrics textbook and gawk at shots of kids with rickets and scurvy and other awful afflictions, always with that creepy black rectangle over their eyes. My Haftorah portion could have passed for the words that appeared alongside these visuals, as written by a diagnostician with a certain biblical zeal. If the bright spot be white in the skin of his flesh, and in sight be not deeper than the skin, and the hair thereof be not turned white, then the priest shall shut up him that hath the plague seven days." Not exactly a Bible classic. Sure, I had a little money left over, but the true legacy of my bar mitzvah was physical graffiti. The draw began with the much-labored-over album sleeve. Through the windows of an East Village tenement building, you peered at iconic images from the 20th-century Western tapestry. The Charles Atlas ad. A sepia Lee Harvey Oswald. The G-Force test pilot with concave cheeks. Dorothy waking up in Kansas. You could change the configuration depending on which of the inner sleeve sides faced out, so it was interactive. Listed in pseudo-ransom note fashion, even the song names invited contemplation. Nothing against custard pie, sort of a Zeppelinized Bo Diddley thing about this really hot chick who works in a bakery, or at least reminds one of a baked good if viewed at the right angle, which is a perfectly banging opener. But track two, The Rover, took me to the deep and profound place. Jimmy Page's solo was like a speech or a sermon, so stirring as to summon a weirdly intimate, quasi-religious sense of connection to the music and to the rest of the world. Privately termed Jimmy's Rover solo the Peace Lead, although I would never admit it, not even to Tommy, certainly not to your average Zeppelin fan. Though Jimmy and Robert were rail skinny and prettily handsome, the group's fan base consisted of the most macho and menacing of my peers, guys with big heads, early facial hair, and aggressive testosterone levels. Johnny and I called them pubers, as far as the crowd that gathered at the monument to smoke a few bowls and a few burros before school was concerned zeppelin was king black sabbath the other dark british lords of our knights were their only competition oh no no please god help me in my other major fantasy of the era Mr. Rosnovsky is saying how, one year, a kid named Kippy Daly slouched so much he gave himself an advanced case of scoliosis and had to be committed to an iron lung following a series of painful experimental treatments, when a subatomic rumbling stops him in mid spiel. The wall holding the blackboard begins to crumble, and through it, on some kind of combination stage slash battering ram, comes Led Zeppelin, martial amps stacked high, volume deafening in a revolutionary amalgam of rock and roll and demolition. Mr. Roznovsky wets his pants and flees. School is canceled. And a massive, wholly inexplicable concert that no one will ever forget follows. There was no better feeling than connecting on a song with Mom and Dad. In the car, when a good song would come on, Mom would turn the volume up, and we would listen as one. She got a particular hoot from songs that referenced previous musical eras. If Oh Babe, What Would You Say by Hurricane Smith came on and we were close to home, we'd wait in the driveway until the song ended, Mom keeping time with one hand on the steering wheel. Listening in Dad's den, she would slap rhythm on her thigh, and her foot would get involved. Dad would start nodding along, or better yet, conducting. He'd pronounce it a good cut, and all of us would be in harmony. Johnny and I were always on the lookout for songs they would like. The problem was, if the folks didn't like a song that you loved, they were blunt about it. So much so that it felt like a failure. Mom and Dad were not of the, it's not my taste, but what do you like about it, school of thought. In fact, they had several unshakable beliefs about pop music, mostly of the prohibitive sort. Thou shalt sing lyrics clearly. Thou shalt not be repetitive. Thou shalt not sing in a fluty soprano. Thou shalt not fade out, except I am the walrus. In retrospect, imagining I could persuade Dad to like my favorite band was an act of sheer blind optimism. Oh, I was crafty, starting him off with "Bron Your Hour, the brief, bewitching, unpronounceable instrumental on side three of physical graffiti. But having established in Dad a provisional acceptance of Page via acoustic Jimmy, I moved on to Rock God Jimmy, which proved a bridge too far. Tacked up in my bedroom was a very large poster I'd scored in town at Good Vibrations. Jimmy P. with his cherry-red Gibson double-neck EDS-1275, a.k.a. the coolest man-made object in the universe. With his curtain of hair framing a face in full guitar rictus, Page plays a chord on the twelve-string neck while hoisting the magnificent apparatus heavenward like a two-headed Excalibur. I found the image captivating, almost Hindenburg-like in its immediacy. When Dad came home from work one day, I brought him up to my room to show him the poster, and his response was as harsh as a one-star review in the Times. Dad, arms folded, eyes narrowing, brow crease forming. Long pause. He looks... androgynous. I knew this wasn't a compliment. Johnny later explained that androgynous meant someone who looked like both sexes, and at no extra charge advised me that epicene meant someone who looked like neither. Well, if Dad didn't like the look of Paige, he sure wasn't likely to respond well to the man's overpowering sound. I should have known. One time in the car, I turned up doo 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 -doo heartbreaker by the stones, and he was so appalled that I felt a sense of shame for causing him such distress. To be fair, Dad didn't discriminate. When a nurse at his medical practice made the mistake of sharing with him the Moody Blues record Days of Future Past, In the belief that a classical music aficionado like Dad would appreciate hearing the London Symphony Orchestra in a progressive rock setting, he returned the record to her along with a strongly worded critique. Cold-hearted orb that rules the night, removes the colors from our sight. Red is gray and yellow-white, but we decide which is right and which is an illusion. Even as kids, we knew that Mr. Wilson across the street was suspect because he listened to Montevani. Dad had a name for easy listening. Bird music. It was the lowest of the low, the toilet water of popular culture. He'd lose respect for you if he found out you listened to bird music. Music in the wrong hands, Dad seemed to suggest, could be so terrible that the proper response was revulsion and contempt, or at least a turned-up nose. But I loved some of that terrible music without reservation. Knowing his feelings on the issue, I have to admit, I loved it a little bit more. And as much as I resented Dad's intransigence, I emulated him in my own way. Like the time my sister said her favorite band was the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. But you only know one song by them. How could they be your favorite? They just are. Name one other Ozark Mountain Daredevil song besides Jackie Blue. They're still my favorite group. That's impossible. You have to know more than one song for the band to be your favorite. Your favorite group is probably the Beatles. These days they call it mansplaining. Zeppelin's Five Nights at the Garden sell out quickly. But Tommy knows a guy. We'll be in the first promenade overlooking Stage Left, which is way better than the nosebleed seats we had for Frampton, but nothing like the eighth row tickets we had for Aerosmith Nugent. Then again, Zeppelin is a much bigger deal. In preparation, I score a dime bag from Bulldog and roll up a bunch of joints the night before in the bathroom with the door locked and place them in a sandwich bag along with a Bic lighter. I'll shove this contraband down my balls at an appropriate moment before reaching the ticket-taker at the garden. That's how we say it. Ah, just shove it down your balls. They never look there. The occasion demands that I dress somewhat defensively. Along with my beloved Zep t-shirt, light blue with an iron-on depicting page and plant under stage lights, and tight Levi's with incipient knee-holes, I opt for waffle-stompers instead of sneakers because they're rugged and make me look a little taller and despite the warm June temperature, I wear a dark blue hoodie because the forecast calls for fireworks. Only a few had gone off at Aerosmith Nugent, but the aerial combat will be heavier tonight, and the possibility of a cherry bomb or an ash can tossed from the cheap seats and landing in my now considerable mop of hair, which refuses to grow down only out to the side, isn't mere paranoia. Maybe I'm a little sensitive about the possibility of random injury since Tommy shot a paperclip into my eye a couple years ago and I almost lost the sight in it. Mrs. Roberts has the first leg of our nefarious carpool. Tommy rides shotgun with Daryl, a family friend, in the ample middle of Mom's brown Buick Riviera. Daryl's father will pick us up afterward, which is a good thing. He has a lenient attitude toward delinquency, his other son being a pioneer in that area we will be both wasted and deaf. I'm in the back seat between Tony D. and Frank Franco. Frank wears a faded denim jacket that's seen some shit. He isn't that big, but when he squints at you he looks a little deranged. Frank has played the bully with me a few times, so it's weird being next to him in the car, politely ignoring each other. On our way up Churchill, the East Hill's main artery, as we're passing the lengthy unfolding of the Harari's home, rumored to be among the Hill's most opulent, I chanced to recall a discussion with my parents on the subject of conspicuous consumption. The Hararis have a bowling alley in their basement, I say in a derisive tone. That is just so ridiculous. What person needs to have their own bowling alley? Frank Franco looks at me like I've just ordered a double scoop of passion fruit sorbet topped with rainbow sprinkles. The Riviera slows, and Mrs. Roberts flashes me a look in the rear view. Now, David, what makes you so sure of that? Expecting to hear an assent from up front, having just issued a bona fide grown-up opinion, and figuring that most adults thought along similar lines, I'm fairly shocked at her response. How do you know the Hararis don't need a bowling alley in their basement? Well, I mean. Now, David, you don't know that. Mr. Harari is a very important man. Do you think he would live in such a a magnificent home if he weren't an important man? The old tie-down. Uh, no. So, when a man like Mr. Harari entertains important guests, wouldn't you agree he has to entertain them in the manner they're accustomed to? (sighs) Yes. And that means in high style, she says, flashing me a satisfied grin. At which point, I just close my eyes and think of Zeppelin. Dropped off our pointed plastic contraband properly shoved to balls' adjacency, we enter the garden and join the tribes for an evening with Led Zeppelin. Beer is flowing from the concessions, and IDs are not being checked. Flask-shaped bottles that once held southern comfort litter the men's room, which I'm relieved to get in and out of without any hassle from the scary-looking, jean-vest-wearing dudes getting absolutely annihilated in there instead of at their almost entirely unpoliced seats, for reasons I can't quite fathom. The combined smoke of 6,000 joints, 800 of them canoeing wildly, befogs the packed arena in an oppressive weather system of acrid dank. As the lights go down, it already feels like a free-for-all. At the storied Isle of Wight Festival in August 1970, Leonard Cohen addressed the gathered hundreds of thousands, saying, Could each of you light a match? So that you'll sparkle like fireflies each at your different heights. I would love to see those matches, flare. Well, in the ensuing years, things have gotten seriously out of hand. Dave Marsh, writing a Newsday of the previous night's concert, said Zeppelin's entrance was greeted by, quote, "...an assault of fireworks that made the garden seem like Dené. Tonight is no different. I pull the strings of my hoodie a little tighter around my head and let the vorpal sword of the song remains the same, crushed through my inhibitions, as clouds of commercial weed mix with flash powder and stage pyrotechnics, and everybody gets increasingly improbably high. Good evening, Vietnam. And soon? Oh, bliss. The evil bent note intro to the rover. transported. Fully ready for my journey. And the peace lead. And... Holy hell. It's all just a horrible tease. Right as Plant's vocal is supposed to come in, the band lurches to an abrupt halt and kicks into sick again, the last song on graffiti and that rarest of Zeppelin songs I don't love that much. This is not the only adjustment I have to make to the live Zepp experience. Plant can't hit the high notes too well, which really changes things, and the band is a far messier beast than on record. Being seated above the first loge reduces these objects of fascination to flickering figures. Plant is closest to us and easy to spot in his iridescent pants, while Page, heroine skinny and white, is tantalizingly out of reach at stage right. Still, they are right down there, right now, breathing the same air. A few songs in, we are treated to the first true fan favorite, over the hills and far away. It is sheer bliss, Zeppelin's knack for conjoining fairy-glade gentleness with ball-kicking oomph shining like a rough diamond here. The song swells down, like a dove making a gentle landing, and as applause rushes up to meet the fading semitones, I think to myself, we are at a Zeppelin concert, and they are playing for us right now, and I am so happy. Just then, something sinister begins to take place a few seats over. Frank Gianfranco is about to set fire to the fuse on the large firework Tommy's holding, an M-80 shooter. The shooter is like a Roman candle, except instead of sending a flame ball 50 feet in the air, it propels a lit M-80, which explodes somewhere upon its descent. Some shoot out a pyrotechnic star, the technical term for what a Roman candle emits. Others, a cylindrical tube packed with explosive flash powder. Neither one do you want to land near you. Tommy holds the thing aloft, away from his body, and the charge shoots off in a high sparkly arc. One second. Two. Then it explodes somewhere in the second loge. Even from our safe vantage, it makes a huge noise, way bigger than the pops we've been hearing. A chorus of boos erupts from over the hills and far away, fanning out across the arena all for us." And then, in horrible slow motion, Robert Plant approaches the mic, trousers a-glint, to add his voice and moral authority to the Garden's collective condemnation. Per Newsday on the previous night, Plant had genially urged the crowd to "...cool it with the firecrackers. No more of those exploding things. You know, diplomatic." The Times said he laudably and earnestly attempted to discourage the hurling of firecrackers and cherry bombs. Tonight, though, Percy is in no mood. He employs a far more direct tactic. Boo! Intones Led Zeppelin's golden god. Boo! He repeats, a little longer this time, a bit more musically. Was there a third time? Probably. It was hard to hear over the crowd noise. I'm in full hate now behind my hoodie, both to drown out the booze and to dissociate myself from my foolish friends, just in case a member of the Zep faithful is moved to mete out a little mob justice. Which would serve them right. Our drawn-out moment of public ignominy ends with the grabby blues lick that opens Since I've Been Loving You. From here, Zeppelin covers an awful lot of ground. There's an acoustic set featuring John Paul Jones on triple neck guitar, Ten Years Gone, possibly the greatest Led Zeppelin song of them all, Bonzo's 20-minute drum solo, Moby Dick, and a thunderous cashmere with trippy laser accompaniment. But the high-intensity joint smoking and swigs from Tony D's wineskin have obliterated the possibility of further details. I should probably thank Tommy for making the incoming encore impossible to forget. The band returns to the stage for Whole Lot of Love, and another level of pandemonium is reached. Besides Stairway to Heaven, this is the ultimate Zeppelin song for the gathered minions, one that everyone in the arena knows every inch of, and the place is shaking and quaking. We're all on our feet and joining in, and it's almost corny, like those moments in synagogue where everyone stands up reflexively and sings the Shema. This is when Tommy and Frank break out the B-game fireworks. Now sparklers may lack explosive power, but Tommy's are no tepid store-bought numbers that Grandma twirls on the Fourth of July. These are supercharged, Carnival-approved Brazilian sparklers that you can read under. Garden security descends quickly. Tommy and Frank are apprehended and hauled away, while the speedy Tony D, a local soccer legend, takes off with two in pursuit. Daryl and I don't know each other well, so when the lights go on after rock and roll, we're mostly silent except to share some visine, the eye-whitener of choice among teenage stoners. Millions ask for visine and 100% relief. What more could you ask for? We'll reek of smoke and be slow on the uptake, but at least our eyes won't be poached. We reach the appointed spot to meet our ride, and as Daryl starts to make an excuse for Tommy and Frank's lateness, Dad waves him off. One of the cops interrogating the lads had ascertained who was responsible for picking them up and had come out to the car to explain the delay. Tony D shows up first, smirking at having escaped capture through superior athletic prowess. Tommy and Frank arrive with long faces soon after, and we ride home in silence, ears ringing, synapses sputtering. On the sixth and final night of Led Zeppelin's 1977 Madison Square Garden residency, Jimmy Page sustained minor injuries when a device tossed from the crowd exploded near his hand during Stairway. After leaving the stage in disgust, he eventually returned for the encore and soldiered on through the rest of the tour. I soldiered on, too, in my way. I never took Tommy aside and called him on his willingness to injure people in pursuit of stupid kicks. He was surely guilty of in Dave Marsh's apt description, stupidity bordering on sadism. Yet, long after the eye incident, two eye surgeries, and our families becoming adversaries in a lawsuit, I continued to be weirdly proud that we'd remained the best of friends. Tommy may have learned nothing from all of it, but somehow that didn't bring him down in my eyes. If we all think hard enough, maybe we can make it go away. Next up, Kruger scores some acid and things get surreal.